0: Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast,
1: where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve.
0: Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially for the non-technical audiences. And you can learn more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, a comment would be great. And if you're listening to the podcast, well, a review would be great. Either or, we'll take it. <laughs> Today, my guest is Michelle Hayward, She's a civil engineer and founder of PositiveHire.co. She's also host of the Dear Corner Office podcast and the person behind the P uh, behind PH Balance, the software tool, and people analytics consultant. She's that, too. She's a number of things. So I'm really le- looking forward to learning more about where she started and where she's going. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Michelle.
1: Thanks, Neil, for having me.
0: From the bit of research I, I, I did on you, I, I did mention that you were a civil engineer. So what was the the motivation to study civil engineering?
1: Hurricane. <laughs> Literally, when I was uh, 12 years old, a Category 5 hurricane hit my home state of South Carolina. One of my aunts and her family lost their home while they were in their home um, during that hurricane. And I wanted to understand how could this happen because they had this nice brick home that was four to five years old. How could just wind do this damage? And that took me down the road to civil engineering. Okay.
0: I mean, I also saw you got a master's and you got a master's in something called industrial management. So what is industrial management and why get the master's?
1: Industrial management is a cross between industrial engineering and maybe an MBA at the time. Back many years ago, when I decided to go that route for a master's degree, I didn't want an MBA. I wanted to focus more on total quality management. Um, 5S, things around um, quality improvement. So, really, how early back then, the early 2000s, late 90s, GE was really big on having just in time parts, right? Um, reducing errors in manufacturing. And so I was really interested in that aspect of manufacturing, and of course, it's very, very different from civil. But it's really more around what we say now is around the data. How do you get to that point? And I think that was some of the earlier times we saw of data analytics really early um, on in the '90s and the early 2000s.
0: Okay. Did you get your master's right after getting your bachelor's, or did you work in in between?
1: Um, I've, I'll say I went straight through to get my master's degree. While I was working on my master's degree, I took a year off to do an apprenticeship in technology transfer um, through the National Technology Transfer Center back then. That's what it was called. It's no longer around. And they they were, at the time, they had a contract with NASA. And so you would go to a regional or you could stay at the National Technology Transfer Center. I went to the Northeastern Regional Office and we, that office partnered with Gardard, NASA Gartered. And so we would help NASA spend, find companies to take technology they developed and commercialize it outside of the government, or NASA would take some um, companies' technology and bring it into the government for different applications. And so I took a year off to do that. And then I came back and finished up my last semester or so at Clemson.
0: Okay, so now you have a bachelor's, you took a year off to do tech transfer, you finished off your master's. So what type of work did you do when you were finished school?
1: When I first finished school, well, it was a year in there where I was looking for work. So for those of you that are currently in that space, where you're like, hud oh, it's never been this bad. The pandemic, y'all take the cake because the pandemic did take over that. There have been other periods and other generations that have had issues in finding jobs. And that year I, I did tutoring, right? I tutored and I just drove, it was $20 an hour to do tutoring. Like, okay, that's better than no money. And I did the tutoring and then I ended up getting about a year after finishing grad school, a technical sales job with Eaton Electrical in the, um, over in what's called um, UPS for short, but uninterrupted power supplies. And I was an inside sales engineer. So I took this inbound sales calls. So if you don't like sales and I didn't like sales and I didn't understand inbound sales is the easiest sales to have because people know what they want. Or they're trying to figure out if this is the right product. For like that's the easiest way to make money as a salesperson is inbound because it's coming into you. And so I did that for a little bit more than a year and a half um, and moved on to something better. That was a better fit for me at the time.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sales can be difficult, but yeah, if the people are calling you certainly better than you cold calling people and getting hung up on that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so then okay, that's cool. So you did the, the tech transfer for a bit, and then you did tutoring for a bit, and then you did tech sales. So did you work as, a, as an engineer at any point?
1: Sure. So I had the great opportunity. I, I love going to the National Society of Black Engineers National Convention. And I was looking for a new job. And so I attended the convention and ran into one of my classmates from undergrad. And she was like, hey, come to my employer's booth we're hiring. And it happened to be an architecture, engineering, construction company, or AEC for short, or design build, depending on how you want to frame it. And it was a at that point in time, it was a 25,000 person company that was global, did anything from mining to um, building fossil, designing building fossil fuel plants to roadway design, like they did the gambit of things. And so I ended up. Uh, talking to the recruiter at the interview, at the booth, who then brought me on site for an interview. So all of you that are interviewing, like, oh my God, it's a whole process. Like, you get to do this from that from the comfort of your home, right? We get to get on planes and fly places, and so you're missing a whole two days of just travel. And so... I did the interview, I got hired there. I came in as a cost engineer. So I was on the project control side. So I was only looking at the dollars and I was on the field. So I was on the construction site. So it was a project right outside of Pittsburgh. And so I started out as a cost engineer there. I went to a construction engineer and then to a project manager. So the engineering I did was more on the takeoff side, um, managing contracts and understanding. and, And I guess in this aspect of engineering was a couple, was a few things. On the cost engineering side, understand I had to learn contracts and more than just the, the tables with all of the costs in it, in the contract with the you know, unit pricing for materials and labor, but really understanding did they actually do the work that they're billing for? That is something they don't generally teach you. But as an engineer, does it make sense of how many... Feet of rebar or how much concrete they say was installed wasn't installed to the engineering specifications. And those are the things that you really need to understand. And the same thing that I rolled over from cost engineering to construction engineering, construction engineering was doing more takeoffs. So you're actually counting the pieces on the drawing that a, that a design engineer created. Um, also, you're talking, and I, and I know just in communications aspect from the cost engineer, I was talking to, I was on the field. So I'm talking between the design engineers that were usually in the office, but I'm also talking to the superintendent for for the civil contractor. I'm talking to the electrical superintendent for the electrical contract. So I'm talking to all of these people that aren't engineers and having to be able to explain certain terms in a different way than if I was talking to another engineer. So it's really important whether I was a cost engineer because trust, they really want their money because I I approve invoices, but then more so focus on that, how to communicate as a construction engineer was critical, because I'm also um, engaging with not only the superintendents, but the foreman and other people, skilled labor. So where there was iron workers, um, concrete finishers, whomever, we're still talking about different things. So trust me, yes, communication became important, but As I went through, those are the things where I wasn't on the design engineering side. I thought it was really boring. So for all of you civils that do design work, I really appreciate it. But I found that my gifts were better out on the field and really on the construction side of the project.
0: Yeah, you know, when you were talking, Michelle, it, made me, it reminded me of when I worked as an engineer, having to give presentations in front of management, and many of them weren't technical people. So I, I certainly take your point about how having to figure out how to best communicate with such people, get your point across, so that there's there's no miscommunication. And I think those, at least for me, those first few presentations that I had to, to do, they were terrible. I, 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 it was uh, it was really <laughs> difficult for me to really figure that out, but. Ultimately my project got canceled. So I had to figure out real quick, you know, how to get better at, at communicating with people. And and it's really what the I guess the catalyst to even this whole teach the geek enterprise has been. So, you know, I mentioned in the intro that you started positivehire.co. So what is positive hire what prompt what is it and what prompts you to start it?
1: So positive hire, we're an early stage tech startup. Our mission is to connect Black, Latina, and Indigenous women who are experienced scientists, engineers, and technology professionals to management roles. I started it based on my experience working in corporate America, doing all of this work, seeing very little progress in my career. And then I started talking to classmates and other women engineers that I worked with, and they were having very similar or identical issues in their career as well. Some of them were even leaving. Like, they're like, I'm still doing the same work 10 years later, I'm tired of this, nobody can give me an answer and they were leaving their their technical careers. Or they got moved out of the technical route to do something more on the management side when they really want to do more design work. And so it was really important for me to be able to create positive hire to help them guide around barriers and o- up over and through barriers that they're having in their careers. And so we do that in a few ways um, as well. So for the women, we offer... Uh, monthly webinars, build community. We do our annual Women of Color in STEM Virtual Summit, which is in February next year, 2024. And we also do uh, career coaching as well as digital courses. So it depends on where you are, what service you need. And and it really, really talks. And and I know you brought up my podcast, Dear Corner Office is not for them. Um, We have a, I have a completely different podcast for them called Her Career Ladder. And it really just talks about those barriers and different things they can do to overcome workplace issues. So we do a lot of content and and training um, one-on-one with women, as well as in small groups.
0: Oh, that's cool. So the the type of uh, outcomes that the women that you work with get from from working with, with Positive Hire, can you give some examples as to what those can be?
1: Sure. The ability to articulate concisely what how their work has contributed to the workplace and i'll give you an example i had one client chemical engineer in a, in the life sciences industry and she was talking about how one of her production lines went down and remember it's life sciences so pharmaceuticals during at the very beginning of the pandemic and how the line is usually down for 8 hours her line was only down for 2 And she's like, for every hour it's down, let's say, I can't remember the exact, it's like a million dollars for every hour the line is down. She was focused on the fact that she got it back up in two. I said, no, you saved the company $6 million because you were able to get it back up in two hours opposed to eight. And how analytical people need to understand what's important to leaders and management in the company is the productivity is fine, but tell me how it impacts the revenue and the profitability of the organization. Okay, you save this amount of weight of you know, seventeen tons of steel or whatever, in in the manufacturing process. What's the dollar amount that they can equate it to, or what was, or maybe it's it's a loss. But you went from seventeen tons where then 20 tons. <laughs> so, so it's still a negative, but you help reduce that and really understand how to equate that and bring that into perspective. Um, one of the other things we do is women often talk about the things they do and not the outcomes. And I always talk about it in a way, like it's a recipe, like you can give somebody the recipe, but what does it make? What's the outcome? So is it is it a great potato salad? Is it some really good mac and cheese? So I understand the importance of it at the end of the day. And so try to get away from the recipe to the actual dish that, and, and what does that look like? And so we really focus on them better articulating what they've accomplished in the workplace and impact they've had. And trust me, I get a lot of pushback on this, <laughs> but I, I've had one, um, one computer engineer I want to say she's about 30, 35 years into her career. She written script for one of her former CEOs to help him better pull in the data off all of these reports he was having to read. She no longer worked for this company. She went back and asked one person after I talked about, you need to be able to equate the value of what you do. And she found out the company had saved between three and $5 million because she had written this script where the CEO could read the reports more concisely. And they were building out a whole new department from the information he was able to to pull together from those reports more, more quickly. She had never asked. She just thought it was a script. And so the things we do, we often undervalue or devalue, or others devalue. But it actually has benefit to them, and we need to really start looking at and asking questions, and equate that on our resumes and our LinkedIn's, and when we have conversations about what we bring to the workplace.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think you're absolutely right when it comes to those outcomes. It really does come down to dollars and cents in so many instances. I mean, yeah, you you were able to be more productive, but so what? Do I save money? Do I make money? <laughs> Either or, maybe both. I mean, yeah, I think yeah, the technical people were really interested in the well, we're interested the in technology. That's why we got into you know technology and in, in engineering science in the first place. We we're really thinking about the money or the the dollars and the cents, but ultimately that's what pays our salaries. So that's probably something we should think more about. I think you're, you're, you're 100% correct. So, I mean, you know, I did also mention in the intro that you're a people analytics consultant. What is that?
1: So, uh, everybody's like, oh, how do you figure out whether people are about to quit an organization, what experience they're having? We often talk about the pay gap. How do you figure out there's a pay gap in your organization? So some of the people analytics we look at is, is HR data. Most times it's just HR data. Sometimes we take some data that's outside of that, depending on the company. So we've come in and help organizations usually collect the data because they haven't been collecting it because of different reasons. Most of it liable. They, they think or assume they have bad practices and so they don't wanna be sued. So they don't collect certain HR data around, let's say pay disparities. And so what we come in and like, hey, we if you want to, if you think you have a problem, let's start collecting data. So we'll come in and collect data around gender, race, age, job title, sal- they have the salary information and we'll start analyzing that data to see if there are any disparities or issues that may, may be identified. Oftentimes that they bring us in from an issue where they are, let's say, having a high turnover rate and they've noticed that they are seeing maybe more black people or more women leaving an organization or leaving a business unit or a certain office. And they're trying to understand what's going on. So something often triggers them wanting to break. It's not like, oh, we should get that done. It's never that. <laughs> it's usually there as a triggering factor. inside of the organization, and sometimes it's government as well, or mandates, that we come in and help them figure it out. And so it's really analyzing their employee information to identify places where we need to do further investigation, or they need to do further investigations. So they may do uh, more internal surveys or employee engagement surveys. And sometimes it's a you know, a 20 minute survey. Sometimes it's just two or three questions. It depends on how we we um, decide to launch it. And then we bring that data back in and we analyze it to figure out what's going on. Had a great conversation with a leader the other day talking about engineers literally leaving civil engineering, just leaving the industry overall. Like, oh, they, they aren't unhappy with the work. They're just leaving the industry overall. I said, but if that is what you're seeing as a trend, what's driving that trend? And they they sat there, they, they didn't cause they didn't see it as a negative to them. I was like, we're short, we have a shortage of civil engineers. <laughs> we have a shortage of talent in in the AEC industry we need to figure out why they're going to other industries and how do we change that? What is it that we need to be offering? And so oftentimes it's sometimes we don't see it as an issue because people aren't necessarily saying negative things, but if you see a certain trend, sometimes it's better to investigate it because it could get worse. Um, and you had enough time to do something. If you paid attention a little bit earlier um, to, to analyze and identify it.
0: Wow. That's so interesting that the, the person knew that people were leaving, but when you just asked, well, why? It's, I don't know. <laughs> what, what you mean you don't know? You, you don't think you should figure that out? <laughs> That's crazy.
1: Everybody, so for some people, if they're like, oh, the culture's bad, I had a bad manager, your pay is horrible, your benefit is not a negative to them. If somebody says, you know what? I'm leaving because I want to spend more time with my family. What do you do? You're like, okay, I can understand that. But what if that really means you have me working 60 hours a week or you want me in the office five days a week? I really need to be home for two because the pay is, is too low here for me to afford to put my child in daycare five days a week opposed to three days a week. Right. And so oftentimes we're taking things at surface level when we need to ask more questions. And then like you may find out child care may be offering some type of child care um, um, stipend or some support may be a better option because it's way easier. Well, I can't say way easier. It could be easier to find a daycare than a civil engineer with. That's a licensed PE with 15 years of experience. And so you really have to weigh and kind of figure out where to go. So if you don't feel personally that it's against your organization by the comments they have or your um, exit interview interview process isn't set up to really capture that data, you're not going to get it. And not everybody's exit interview is set up that way. Uh,
0: I, I, can, I can attest to those exit interviews i never took them all that seriously <laughs> hopefully i'm the hopefully i'm an outlier but i don't think i am <laughs> for sure
1: you aren't. i i find that employees at that point are at the point either they're going to just tell you blatantly everything or they're at the point like i'm not wasting any more time with you because i told you what i told you while i was there and you did little to nothing and so it, it can be very difficult then, there's like, oh, well, we won it on the Algo. Like they gave it to you the three years you, they were here or the seven years they were here or the 15 years they were here. But you would be a, a, a surprised at how many companies <laughs> will have a woman in a role for 10, 15 years and never increase or minimally increase her salary. Then they will literally come out and do a job posting where they, they are so below market value with the salary because they were underpaying that woman for that many years. And so I will see job postings that are like 10 years of experience and it's $45,000. And it's like, for what? And and I remember recently somebody sent me this and and they were telling, I said, it was a woman that worked that role. She was there for like 12 years. It's like 15. I said, yeah. I said, they'll never get anybody for that. Did you go back and tell them it's like a 90 to $110,000 salary for that? She was like, I did. And they were shocked. I said, just send them some job postings that have salaries and they'll, they're going to have to get over their feelings. And that's, and so when you have those, and a lot of women stay, but they stay for different reasons, right? They may have flexibility, they may, for their kids, they may have flexibility when they become a caregiver. And so they don't always stay, they're high, highly undercompensated, but there are other things that they may be getting out of that organization. But at the same time, that organization not doing their due diligence by paying equitably to their all their employees, they it's it's very it is shocking to them to have to come up to market value where it's like, hey, you saved all this money for 10, 12 years, we don't see the problem. You got to take the interest. You're just paying this person off the interest you gain. I I don't see the problem with it. What's wrong? You don't saved over a million (laughs) dollars. Go go ahead and pay up. So yeah, it is quite interesting having those discussions as well.
0: Wow, that's crazy! I I didn't know that the the difference could be that stark. But you know, uh, Michelle, when it comes to even you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I used to have issues giving presentations in front of of management, but I got a lot better at it when my project got canceled. That was that was the, the wake up call. So hopefully, other people that don't have to have such a wake up call. But when it comes to the the speaking that you do, which is just public speaking generally, is that something you've always been good at? And if not, what did you do to get better
1: at it? I was I was okay. I'll say that much. I would say getting better at it was forced upon me having to present in college, also having to take oral or speech in undergrad, but then as a professional later in my career as I became a project manager, working with toastmasters and that and, uh, it was always surprising people like I can never do the presentation but they'll do the table topics. I like the table topic is, is like a random topic. I like at least when I get up to present for five or seven I can pick my topic. And so if nothing else, at least try Toastmasters. Um I think it's they have different methods of you learning to improve your speech. And it really does go a long way. I would say another way that I've gotten better at speaking was way back, not quite 10 years ago, getting to be 10 years, I can't believe it, it's it gone by so quickly. It's Periscope live streaming and having to get on live streams. And I used to be in a women's community of live streamers and we had to live stream for one to three minutes on a topic. And you would do your introduction. You would say, hey, these are three points I'm going to talk about. And in one to three minutes, you would be done. And so it was like a table topic, but live stream. And you're looking at yourself, not anybody else. That was really weird. And you're seeing all of these comments, or hopefully you're seeing some comments come through. And so that really helped me as well become better at speaking. So any opportunities you have outside of work to speak, I would take that. I, I wish I would have done more presentations at SWE conferences, Netspeak conventions, ASCE conferences, because those are opportunities, number one, around technical people, so you don't have to yet get out of, figure out how to explain stuff in non-technical terms, and then branch out to non-technical spaces to talk about what you do. But yeah, I wish I would have taken a better route. I would have been here a whole lot quicker.
0: <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's kind of how it is. It's, yeah, you know, we, we we do things and hope, hope for the best, but then you know, in hindsight, you think of all the things you could have done differently. That's, that's pretty much all of us. So when it, when it comes to the, the speaking that you do, do you ever get nervous beforehand? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves?
1: Always nervous. I just do it. I found that I'll get cotton mouth, so I always keep my cup of water with me. <laughs> um, but I generally... Either, if I have a deck, I have a deck. If not, I will have um, post-its, uh, smaller, smaller post-its with like just the topics, the the highlighted, the bulleted things that I want to go through. Like it was three points or five points to make sure I go through those. And so that's generally what I do is if I, I'm the type of person where if I have a script, I, found, I sound very much like an engineer is going to be very dry and to the point and very... If I just have the points, I'm able to ad lib. I'm able to tell stories. I'm able to interject, and I'm able to bring it back down. And so I learned that about myself, and I stick to just having that one little post it with the bullets on it. If I think, if I'm not working from a deck,
0: yeah, I I agree with you. The when especially when you if you work off a script, you might get out of sorts if you forget a part of the script. Now you're scrambling, trying to figure out what to say next. And that's that's a that's a recipe for disaster. I'm I'm a, I'm I'm with you. Just remembering what your points need to be. Remembering what time you have. You know, if you have 20 minutes, please please don't go 30, especially around lunchtime.
1: <laughs> I hear you. I hear you.
0: That's highly annoying. So for the people who are, are are watching or listening to our conversation, Michelle, if you were to offer one tip that they could use, you know, immediately to get better at giving presentations or public speaking generally, what would it be?
1: Take time each day, whether it's in the evening, afternoon, morning, and just stand in front of your bathroom mirror, however you wanna be dressed, be dressed, and literally just deliver, say a poem, sing a song, do something at first that is comfortable for you, and then start saying things that are more difficult to talk about for you. So do things that are easier for you, and then by a month later, you're probably getting into I need to have this conversation with Bob, or I need to get ready to ask these questions or address these questions in this meeting. And so you're gradually going to get better. And really, only one to three minutes, um, four to five days a week, talking to yourself in the mirror. Um, because you're like, you're gonna be your biggest critic. And if you're like, I hate the mirror, then do it on your phone. And, and that way you can record it. And even send it to somebody you trust to give you really good feedback or you can watch it as well as you can watch it yourself and see where you need to make improvements.
0: Nice. So sing, then talk to Bob. I like it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That works.
0: Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest, Michelle. How can people get in touch with you?
1: You can find me on LinkedIn. That would be probably the easiest way to find me. Um, I'm Michelle with one L and it's Hayward, H-E-Y-W-A-R-D.
0: Excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek. I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non-technical audiences. And you can learn more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Michelle. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms, or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com. Until next time.